Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Tony Shen is an entrepreneur and co-founder of the fish health company Manolin. He studied at MIT before co-founding Manolin with his friend John. In this episode, we discuss why Tony and John moved to Norway and Bergen to build a software platform for the salmon industry, why data can help and solve many important issues for salmon farmers, and Tony's best advice for people that want to become entrepreneurs. Let's start the show. All opinions expressed by Christopher Wonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Wonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hi everyone, welcome back. Super happy to have Tony joining the show. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time. Great to be here. We just discussed coffee or tea guy. What did you end, why did you end up with tea and not coffee? For me, nighttime is tea time, um, but I will drink coffee all day. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Tell me about a typical day in your life, and then maybe we can introduce Manolin in that story as well, because you're quite busy nowadays. Sure. Yeah. Um, typical day for me, I think it varies quite a bit. Um, right now, you know, a lot of early mornings, um, I like to get up about five in the morning so I can talk to our team in Bergen. Um, and that's when my day gets started and then spend the day kind of on calls, building software, having meetings. Um, yeah, it kind of varies. And then, you know, towards the afternoon, we typically catch up with the team here in Denver um, and while everybody in Norway is asleep, but long days, but it's but, been fun. But waking up five in the morning, was it the same while you were studying at MIT or is it something you have to do now since you are as a founder in, in a startup? Uh, I, I don't know if it's being a founder, if it's growing up a little bit. Um, at MIT, it's actually the culture is very different. It's mostly late nights and very late mornings. Um, they actually have a rule where classes don't start before nine. So that's the first class. And then most people by their junior and senior year start to figure out that I can find ways to make my schedule work so I don't have a class until 10 or 11. So it's actually an opposite. I guess when you're in school, it's late nights and staying up late um and now i'm kind of a early morning person but okay. Switch. but okay so from mit to startups was this like a normal trajectory growing up or do you think you, there's something in your upbringing that leaned you towards entrepreneurship mit and stuff or is it coincidence and just life happening yeah i mean i think for me i have a slightly unique path um a you know, it wasn't typical to go to an Ivy League or MIT from my high school. Um, I grew up in the South in in, in, in America. Um, and prior to, you know, the last couple of years, my high school actually didn't send anyone to MIT for, I think it was almost like 20 years. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a normal path, but entrepreneurship for me, you know, it really clicked. It's definitely an ingrained part of school. And, you know, when you go to MIT, you see all the students, brilliant people, people who have built great companies and, you know, it's very inspiring, but, you know, I didn't get any of that growing up. Um, I grew up in a town where our primary industry is tobacco. 
um, we're known for having, you know, one of the larger tobacco companies um, based. So that was my upbringing. But I mean, I think I had a very entrepreneurship type of attitude. Um, I always like to build things. I always like to do things by myself. Um, I, uh, back in high school and middle school, we had a long mowing business. Um, myself and a neighbor, you know, hustled around on so growing a business and doing my own thing was something I always had um, but it was really school at MIT that you kind of got really inspired and saw what was possible people building Dropbox or HubSpot um, and a lot of those great companies and to hear that you know they were just a couple years older than me at the time um, it was pretty eye-opening. So being in Boston, I actually went and visited MIT, and of course, you, you get inspired just by being around the place. Um, do you think it's actually important in your life that you've been at MIT, or do you feel like it's just education, or do you feel like that inspiration and seeing so many people working so hard and also having this like influence from people visiting and stuff actually matters when you're not building and scaling? No, um, I, I think it was super, super helpful, um, very inspiring to be around people that, you know, have done it. Um, I think it makes it, when you're in that environment, it just makes it seem a little bit closer. It makes it seem feasible. Um, I think, you know, you, I'd liken it to, you know, a lot of athletes when, you know, they get inspired when, you know, a professional athlete comes and trains with them and they see how hard they work. Um, they see what it really takes to kind of, you know, to make it. Um, and to be honest, it, it kind of, it's similar to our journey to Norway. Um, when when we came and visited Bergen, we really got a huge eye opening into what the aquaculture ecosystem looked like, as well as you know what kind of companies were actually being built, and it gave us the confidence that we thought we could make an impact and and also achieve it. So I think being in person and really you know seeing it firsthand makes a really big impact. Yeah, and just to add on that, can you also just tell us about like a typical guest that would visit MIT and share their stories because there have been some very big people at your campus. I think every time we discuss unicorns, you say that, okay, I remember that guy at MIT, either it's Patrick or someone from Airbnb or, or whatever, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it was one of the most influential classes I had was called the Founder's Journey. Um, so the, it was a whole class. It was twice a week. And the goal was for them to bring in alumni to talk about their actual journeys. And I was at MIT kind of towards, you know, 2010 or so. Um, and that class, you know, brought in some real big all-stars. Brad Feld came in, Drew Houston from Dropbox came in, um, Patrick Collison from Stripe. At the time, I mean, they weren't necessarily huge companies, um, but their stories, you know, they talked about, you know, where they ate, you know, what classes they went to, their struggles doing problem sets um, as homework. And then, you know, from there, you just saw their 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 kind of growth, right? Like they're, they're now stories that everybody kind of looks at. Um, but at the time, you know, they just came in, talked to us, asked, you know, it was just kind of a sit down and discussion. And, you know, that opened a lot of doors, but also kind of a lot of what the opportunity looked like. You know, when you hear Drew say, yeah, we just didn't want, you know, I, I built this thing on a bus. Um, and then we decided to give equity to a homeowner because we needed a place to actually live. So we gave away equity. Apparently that person became the best investor that they ever had as far as return. They gave away, you know, a room to a couple college kids for a few months and came out with more than all the Silicon Valley VCs. It's crazy. Can you now <laughs> go, I think you're, you're working for the government when the idea comes up about working with ocean and software or... 
how did that idea evolve in your head? And let's introduce the idea properly as well. Sure. Um, I think, I mean, one of the big passions and one of the big things that I learned was just the potential of software and data when I was in school, um, the impact that it can make on the world. I mean, I think when you look at it, it's changed a lot about this world and it will continue to, to make that impact. Um, when I graduated, I wanted to see what that potential looked like. And I thought a, a, a very great place to learn was in government. You know, how can technology and data really help scale what governments do? Um, so that's what I went to go and pursue when I moved to D.C. Um, was working with a government consulting firm, building data systems. Um, and stumbling across kind of the ocean space was, was a little bit random. Um, I was passionate about food systems. My co-founder and I, we, we were just random roommates um, and discovered oyster farms on the bay coast. Um, so this was in the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, through those oyster farmers, we, they really taught us about, you know, what they were doing, growing protein, changing the food systems, um, growing these oysters, cleaning up the water. Um, and, you know, we thought it was the coolest thing, but we recognized that, you know, it was an industry that didn't have much tech. It didn't have much data. So it started as a hobby. We would just go down there on the weekends, visit, you know, one of the farmers said, hey, we have a guest house. You can just stay here. Um, John and I, you know, said that was great. We come down on the weekend and, and, and just write some code. Um, so that's really how it got started and how that pivot switched from working with the government into working with the oceans. How would you sort of describe the food system? Because maybe it's a different way of viewing it as an American compared to in the region. Or how would you like describe the food system and how complex it is? Because producing something in big scale always have some some trade-offs, right? So how can you like get an introduction into the food system? Maybe since you work so close with it. Absolutely. I mean, so one of the work I, I, I did some projects at the Food and Drug Administration um, when, when I was here in, with the government. Um, and through that, I kind of got a glimpse into how the food system worked. But I also had kind of an outside passion, just, you know, liking food. And, you know, I was curious about, you know, the impacts of our food systems, you know, coming out of college, I was looking into things like aquaponics, you know, vertical greenhouses, all of these different, you know, new things that were coming up at the time. Um, John and I actually built a aquaponics setup in our apartment. We had, we had a couple fish in a fish tank and we started growing some herbs um, and was cycling that water. So, you know, trying to just explore with it, um, looking at these different components. But, you know, I think what you mentioned there, one of the things that's really hard to grasp is scale. Um, so you can talk to the oyster farmers and see what that scale looks like. And you look at the numbers when it comes to salmon farming and shrimp farming and what total consumption looks like. Um, it's such a big, big problem. And, you know, what I've learned, come to learn and, you know, the part that I think is exciting is that there's just so many challenges when it comes to food. You can talk about producing food that's good for the environment. You can talk about it at scale when you talk about the entire world. Um, there's just so much going on and so many challenges. It's, it's really a core piece of, I think, what our future looks like. Um, we got to find a way to feed all these people and we got to find a way that does it in balance with the ocean and or with the world and the environment. So that I think is what really got us into this food system. But yeah, the food system in general, you have to, there's so many trade-offs. Um, there's not one single solution in any of these problems. Got you. So when you decided to act on this idea, if you were to submit to YC Combinator or something, what's the simplest way of putting the idea? Because I guess at the start, it was basically maybe just two, three sentences on a vision plate and then you, that's the vision and then go build it, right? So how would you 
explain the concept in the simplest terms possible? Oh, simplest terms possible. Um, I think the simplest terms possible is it, we use the tagline healthy farms for healthy seas. Um, and that I think is, encompasses a lot of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, we think that you know, when it comes to the oceans, the healthy farms will contribute to creating a healthier ocean. Um, and, you know, if you want to talk VCs and, you know, the markets and whatnot, the oceans is, is an untapped one. Um, it's an unregulated space. The amount of activity that goes on, I think the ocean represents some of the largest challenges that we have in the world. Um, it also represents potentially a solution to a lot of those challenges. Um, so the opportunity, you know, we think is definitely there. But what it comes down to is helping farmers have the healthiest farms that they can. Um, we see that as the biggest and most important asset um, when it comes to growing this industry and the challenges ahead. Maybe you also just can explain the, the sort of the, the balance or maybe the development between aquaculture and wild fisheries. So people also get that point, right? Because if you're going to produce more food and scale, it's not going to come from wild, wild fisheries. You have to sort of use aquaculture as a tool, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges and questions that we hear, particularly here in the States. Um, they don't, we, in the U.S., we don't know much about aquaculture. It's not a big industry, you know, it's not viewed as, you know, a big system. Um, and to be honest, it's viewed pretty negatively when you bring it up. Um, but going back to what we talked about with, you know, food systems and the scale and the problems ahead, um, when it comes to aquaculture, I, I think in wild fisheries, um, I think it's really interesting when you look at the facts that, you know, one in seven people in the world depend on seafood as their primary source of protein. Um, I think you can shoot holes in any sort of way that we produce food on land, in the water. There's, there's positives and negatives to every single solution, but aquaculture, I think has a lot of potential. Um, it's not to say the industry hasn't made mistakes in the past, but the potential is always been there. Uh, you know, I don't think we can continue fishing, you know, wild fisheries are sustainable long-term. Um, I just don't think those numbers, you know, match up I mean, there's no way we can keep fishing the oceans. Um, and we got to figure out how to do it in a better way and everything can't be on, on land. Um, so we got to figure out what's the right way that we want to accomplish it in, in the oceans. Um, agree. But yeah, so I think aquaculture has to fit in. So then take us, why did you go to Norway and Bergen? Is it mm -hmm. like that it has to be a great story because you work at the government, you decide to build a tech startup using tech in, in ocean farms and, and fish farmers. So why Bergen? What did you get on the plane? No. So, you know, I, I think it goes back to a lot of the stories that we've heard from our oyster friends. Um, a lot of those guys, you know, it, it, at a simple level, right? They need inventory software. They need to report properly. They want to make sure if disease breaks out, they can track it down. Um, but what they got really interested in, you know, one of their biggest challenges that they asked us was, could you help us reduce our mortality? We lose half of these oysters every year and we don't know why. Um, and, you know, what that really, when we start digging into that problem, you know, what we discovered was that the challenges and the reasons for why you would lose half of a farm can come from anywhere. It can come from, you know, runoff downstream. It can come from a storm. It can come from an algae bloom. It can come from the neighboring farm or, you know, a boat coming by. Um, all of these 
factors could contribute to it. So in order to solve the problem, you really had to harness a large amount of data if you wanted to try to predict all of these issues to help them really, you know, lose less than half of, 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 of their farm every year. Um, so that's number one, what we identified was we needed to find a lot of data if we really wanted to solve these types of challenges. Um, and what we recognized and how we ended up in Norway was that when you look at the salmon market, the amount of data that has been generated in this space is enormous. Um, the farms have had software for 20 years, cameras, sensors, everything is decked out. There's so much data. Even, you know, the Norwegian government collects and publicizes a ton of data. There was no industry, no market in aquaculture that has the scale of data that 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 Norway does. Um, so we quickly recognized that you know if we wanted to really succeed in helping farmers raise you know have the healthiest farms, we needed to start with the place with the most data. Um, so we got on a plane, went to Bergen for a couple of weeks, um, you know, did a quick visit, and basically fell in love with the industry, the city, um, everything. So at that point, when you go to Norway, are you convinced to building this software or is it just a tour to see and if it's right for us to, to establish us in Norway and build or what the mind, what is the mindset when you went to Bergen the first time? Yeah, I, it was really just exploration um, at, at that point. You know, it goes back to when, when you talked about, you know, influences and where's the inspiration comes from. Um, going to Bergen was, you know, we were told this was the center of aquaculture, right? This is the Silicon Valley of aquaculture. You won't find the resources anywhere else. Um, and we had to see it for ourselves. And, you know, one of the places, one of the, 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 the big themes that, you know, I've reflected on is when you think about Silicon Valley and startups, you know, why do it, does everyone flock there? Uh, it's where all the ideas are. You can talk to somebody, you know, you can go to a coffee shop, a bar, and you never know, you may end up with a connection to an investor and maybe kind of that, 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 that groundbreaking thing that, that happens for, for a company. Um, and you just can't find those opportunities anywhere else. When it comes to our industry and aquaculture, Bergen represented that. You know, you go to the bars, everybody will talk about salmon. They'll talk about salmon prices. You know, they'll talk about what work they're doing. Um, you can find those opportunities in Bergen unlike any place in the world. Um, and we saw that firsthand, you know, driving up and down the, 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 the East Coast looking for ocean farmers, oyster farmers. We're driving miles and hours, you know, every time just to get to the next farm where you have a city like Bergen, where you have researchers, government, everybody is involved with it in one way or another. Um, and, you know, that really is what inspired us was this was the place that we could learn faster than anywhere else. Got you. So you talked a bit about, you mentioned the touring up and down. How important is it to actually visit and not just read about it sitting in Bergen and going to bars? Because, you know, we, we know this, Tony, but I don't think people hearing this know how, how the people are, the pioneers, because they like to be where the action happens and not in the cities talking about it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a... Uh... I, I make a lot of comparisons to the work that we did, you know, visiting oyster farms, because I liken it very similarly to the industry in Norway. It's just many, you know, a couple decades behind, in a sense. Um, but the types of people that, that we met were very similar. 
Um, and like you said, one of the things that, that John and I really wanted to, to, to accomplish in Norway was to visit up and down the coast. You know, we've come to learn that Norway is very, very different. Northern Norway, Western Norway, Eastern Norway, they all got different cultures and, and different types of people. Um, and there's a lot to be learned from a lot of it. But going back to, you know, why is it so important, you know, the industry pioneers, I think you don't find an industry. I don't know if there's many industries like this. Um, cause salmon farming, the guys who started it, the guys who threw a net pen off a dock, you know, a 10, a, 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 I don't even know, five meter by five meter net, um, 30, 40 years ago, and just threw some salmon in and see, saw if they could kept them alive are the ones running these companies now. And that growth and trajectory is something I don't know if you've seen anywhere else. Um, and I think it's crazy that, you know, the market and the industry is so advanced now, but it really just started with the same guys who, you know, I think of, I could have been one of those people at some point, you know, I've definitely caught fish on my fishing rod, put them in a tank and try to keep them at home for as long as possible. Right. It's, 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 it's that similar feeling. Um, and I got the same sense with the oyster guys. Like, I think one of the, the interesting things you hear is if you go to an oyster farmer, oyster, the oyster industry, you know, has two sides. There's the kind of high end side that is like the wine bar. You got your dozen oysters um, and, and you sip your wine and it's three American dollars per oyster. Or you can go to the farm and sit down with the farmer, sit on the dock, you know, and crack open oysters, have a beer, sit by the actual grill. Um, and it's the two different sides, same food, but it's two different sides. And you kind of see that with the salmon markets too, and the guys who are part of it. Definitely. So while you're meeting this, these uh, pioneers in the industry, how do you see your product and the product you're building in Mandolin help helping them? Because I think you, I, I don't know if it's like pivoting a lot of times during your, your years, but you have to sort of always reflect, am I building the right product for these guys that are so good, right? So can you tell, tell us a bit about those like processes? Because I guess you get new input all the time. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I think it's something that's, it, it, it's a challenge for any startup, right? Finding product market fit, finding what your customers want. Um, I mean, from our side, right, we, we didn't come from a farming background. We came from a tech background. Um, and because of that, you know, we've had to stay very diligent about the learning and the feedback that we get. Helping them, I mean, we're never going to be better farmers. We can never, you know, we're never going to be able to replace that experience and that work. Um, but what we can do is really focus on the efficiencies and, you know, where can we save time for people? Um, what has changed in the industry, in, in my opinion, is, you know, there's more critics, you know, there's more people that want to see what's going on. And managing this data, managing this information is becoming a bigger and bigger challenge. And it's, I think, becoming the responsibilities of the companies to be able to figure that out. So that's where I think tech can really help. But the experience and the decision making, you can't replace that. I mean, the best that we can try to do is is to give farmers time back in their, their actual day, because what we hear is they want to spend it on the farm. Um, you know, and that's what we want to make happen is get out of the office, get back out to the farm as easy as possible. Um, that's been the kind of mission and the line of thinking that we have been following when we come with iterations. Can you explain how you would like the farmers to use your software and tool? So maybe it's easier for people listening to understand how they, how, how you want the farmers to use Manolin software. 
Yeah, and I, I guess we haven't necessarily given a full pitch of the product, um, but I mean, what what we're doing is building tools and data insights um, to help farmers make better decisions or more informed decisions, um, and really to help them save time and to be out on the farm more. And you know, when when you're talking about how we do that and you know the areas, one of the the things that I think is changing in the industry is this interest over fish health. Um, and that has been our focus. You know, the farmers, that is their most important asset um, is having great health and managing it is becoming more and more challenging. So the ways that we help is for one, we help ma manage data. So we bring in all of a farm's data from their inventory systems, from their lab reports, um, from their neighboring areas um, and bring it into one place so they can see it in one specific area. The number two thing that we do is we help them track, you know, metrics. You know, one of the, 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 the key things you hear from any farmer is they can tell you specifically exactly what happened last year, two years ago, five years ago. Um, they know their seasons very, very well. Um, but what we have learned is as these organizations have grown, tracking this information over time and being able to measure it becomes harder. Um, it becomes you know, I guess like a fishing story, it, you can, it, the fish always seems bigger every time you, you kind of talk about it. So having numbers to back up those decisions is really important. And then the, 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 the last piece that we really want to work on is the forecasting side. So not to, forecasting will never change, you know, uh, uh, the way a farmer makes a decision. Um, but it can really augment a lot of the kind of thinking, um, you know, what are the risks I'm coming? Am I at risk of a disease because of certain things? Um, I believe that the data can tell you a lot that can help with that decision-making process. Let's give an example, even if it's CLS or whatever, because just people listening. So you have different farmers operating maybe close to each other. And if something breaks out, a bacteria or CLS, uh, your data can actually help people be aware of that quicker, right? Absolutely. Um, that's, that's what, what our, our goal and mission is. Um, I think the, if we want to dive into one of those specific examples, when it comes to a disease such as PD, um, farmers have many, the industry has grown. There's a lot of choices um, and a lot of ways to try to combat a disease or an illness. You can have a different egg. You can have a vaccine. You can change up, you know, your, 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 your cleaning process. There's so many of these factors. When it works, it's hard to know what's the actual reason that it works. And when it doesn't work, it's hard to know why that was the case. Um, so that's where I think software and data can, can do a lot to help slice and dice this um, to make better judgment calls. So, you know, can we see something in the data that seems like a trend? Um, can we measure that over time and really get to a confirmation if that is the actual case and whether that specific reason was why something worked or didn't work? Um, when it comes to a disease like PD, you know, that's that's a very specific example. And just to, to sort of like emphasize that, because what makes this so hard is that we're talking about biology to a large degree. Yeah. And it's so hard. I mean, Silicon Valley, I've talked about this, like software meets biology for, I don't know, five, 10 years, but <laughs> yeah. it's very hard to crack. Can you just like explain how hard it is to forecast and explain biology in data? I know it's coming more and more, but like, that's not an easy problem to work on. It's, it's uh, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's the way we think about it is, you know, 
you're never going to know it all. And in the oceans in particular, that's a very unknown thing when it comes to what we as humans understand from a science point of view, right? You know, you, we always hear stories on space versus the oceans. We don't know anything of what's going on. Um, so it's a constant and ongoing struggle. And, you know, I think the best we can do is try to generate more information and continue chasing a lot of these insights. Um, but yeah, I just, when it comes to the, the biological aspects of farming you can't you can't you can't figure it out there's always going to be unknowns something's always going to come up um but i think the science in us wants to explore it because also yeah. it's also always evolving right so it's not like if you figure out biology you like you're done you're just like okay now it's day one and day two will be different <laughs> absolutely yeah it's there's 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 a ton of random occurrences right and you know, when I, one of the facts that, that, that I've been, that I think is so interesting is when it comes to salmon farming, right? People, a, people will compare it to, to cattle, to chickens, to, to pigs and poultry. Um, but when you think about the amount of generations that have occurred, salmon farming is, you know, what do we have? Maybe 10, 20 at most generations of fish that have ever been raised and kind of bred. When you compare that to the other species that we farm, um, you know, that's thousands of, 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 of generations. We've done it for so long. Um, there's been a lot of times to kind of figure it out and, you know, see what the different options are. But when it comes to fish, we're still so early in that process. Um, we, it's really, it hasn't even developed yet. Definitely. So let's change topic a bit. I mean, in Norway, we have this like big wave of entrepreneurship and startups. I know you notice it because you have been pitching as well in Norway. Of course, you, you, I think you won't want every pitch you, you entered. Um, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> can you, yeah. <laughs> can we, can we compare startups the way you, I, I know you're not looking so much at Norwegian startups, but when you live in Bergen, where you're, when you're in Norway, you probably reflect and talk about the differences. I have some ideas on the differences, but can we try to paint a picture of how you, how you like, have viewed the Norwegian startup landscape compared to the country you're from and the American way of scaling a startup. Yeah. I mean, I'll start off by saying, you know, American startups also differ quite a bit. Um, you know, it, even, even regionally. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, I've never actually worked in Silicon Valley. Um, I've worked for startups in the past, but you know, I've never actually been in that ecosystem. Um, but it does differ quite a bit. And, you know, I, I think we've seen a lot of growth from the Norway side. Um, I think there's definitely differences in the culture of, 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 of both countries um, and the way that we kind of operate, you know, work-life balance is, is, is a little bit different for sure. Um, but I mean, I think the ways to kind of break it down are, you know, it, when you look at the differences, it's really about, you know, what are the problems people are facing? You know, what stage of the growth, not every market I think is going to have, you know, the VC market, it, you can't all be Silicon Valley. Um, so it is very different. And I mean, for us, we've seen differences in, in Denver, where, 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 where I'm currently based versus when we talk to, you know, VCs in Silicon Valley, for example. Um, but I think every single geography has got its own unique thing. Um, and I see Norway, you know, Bergen in particular, developing its own. But so when you participate in those pitching competition in Norway I know that's what maybe that was very early on you know the DNB stuff and the accelerator etc do you feel like do you like a lot of the cases or do you feel some of the cases are not the right fit for VC because I, I remember we were discussing on the phone that 
not every case is a VC case and that's some, some businesses should just be grown 10% each year and be happy with that. While some company needs those, that 10 X, maybe we can break that concept a bit down because I don't feel like that's common knowledge in Norway, but in the U S it's getting pretty clear. The idea of that VC isn't always the best option. Yeah, I mean, I think um, from a founder perspective, you know, when when you talk to VCs, they're pretty clear about what what they want, right? As far as you know, is their goal to get you to the next round? Do they measure their company based on how many series can move on to Series A? How many move on to Series B? Um, what are the KPIs they you know focus in on? And as a founder, you make the decision on whether that is right for your business or not. And, you know, whether you want to go after that kind of pathway um, and whether those those resources, you know, can benefit you. Um, I think it's tough, though, because the one thing that that that, you know, when you think about it, some of the companies that have become huge successes, they don't sound like, you know, they sound like 10% businesses at the beginning anyways. Um, selling selling books over the internet never seemed like a huge business at the time, right? Um, so I, I, it's, it's hard to figure out. Um, I think it really comes down to what the founding team and what the founders want to accomplish with it. Um, if their goal is, you know, Maybe maybe they want to build a 10x company, but that starts by building 10%. You know, for the first few years, um, it really comes down to what the founding team wants and what's right for the company. Um, but yeah, I, I think people are starting to recognize. I, I think one of the interesting things is you know the amount of resources that's out there. You don't necessarily have to bring in money to build businesses nowadays. Um, in stand-up websites, you know, you can start something and test things very very quickly. So. Uh, the opportunities are becoming more and more open when it comes to the founding teams. And also, right, a, a bad VC structure can be can destroy a company very easy because, like you said, the incentives on the board is so important because the wrong board member actually gives Tony more work than less, right? And a good board member actually helps you. Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I, this is our first company that 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 we have founded. Um, but you know, you you learn those lessons. I think as you go along, um, you start to see the value of the people that have really been there for you. Um, and you know, they say don't ever take you know the biggest round, right? So you don't. You really got to pick the the right people and the ones who are going to back you. Um, and, you know, I think that's the case for if you're building a 10% business or a venture business, but that's the case, you know, you want to surround yourself with the right people. Um, that lesson probably never ends. It's always going to be true. <laughs> and I, and I always come back to, I feel like, like your biggest job maybe is to hire the right people because the people you hire is the company you build. So the first 10 people, that's the company. I mean, you can, you can talk about the culture values and stuff, but if you hire three people that doesn't suit your vision, it's like, it's never going to work anyway, probably. So has hiring been the thing you're like spending a lot, a lot of time on and are not sure about, or have you found hiring to be easier than you thought? Or how, how has that recruiting looked on your end? Yeah. Um, I, so I, I did quite a bit of recruiting back in my previous job. Um, but I think the biggest difference in, in the work that we're doing now is, you know, making sure you have a team you can believe in. Um, cause you're going to be in the trenches. There's going to be good days and bad days. And, you know, that team is really everything for the company. 
Um, so for us, you know, finding those right folks, it may take a little bit longer, but we want to make sure that we make the right choices um, when it comes to it. So it's, it, it has been a lot of learning. I think it's been really exciting. It's been really fun meeting a lot of people um, and kind of going on this journey. Um, but yeah, I think when it comes down to it, we just want to find people who can get the job done, but you know, that we can put our faith behind and they can put our faith behind in us. Um, cause I think it goes both ways. You know, one of the, the, the pieces that we talk about is every hire, we, we definitely want to improve on certain pieces, right? If we're hiring a right now, we are looking at a senior data engineer. We want to bring in a senior data engineer that is better than all of us, um, that are currently on on the team. And that's something we're very open about. Um, we expect people to come into our teams and be better than what we can do, um, and, you know, day one, and they have that expertise. So, you know, finding that I think is different, you know, in many organizations, you hire to replace an actual role. Um, and I had a different perspective when, when, when I was hiring for a previous company, but in this situation, it's, you were really looking for the right team players. So basically you want to average up for every hire, every hire, right? Yeah. So, but that's Absolutely. so incredibly hard, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so no, how do you do it? Uh, By talking to people I, or do you need references or is it just like this complicated puzzle where you just try to get the pieces to fit <laughs> in your head? No, I mean, I think step one is being very honest about what we're good at and what we're not good at. Um, I think, you know, is you can be very cavalier. And, you know, I think back in college, kind of growing up, you know, I've always I've had confidence in myself. Right. I felt like I can learn things. I felt like I can do things by myself. Um, and, you know, recognizing that you may be good at that. You may be a quick learner but there's still going to be people who can help you even faster. And that's been, I think the step one for our team is recognizing and being very truthful and honest about, you know, where are the gaps? Um, and, you know, from there meeting people, you don't necessarily have to, you know, references are great. Um, but it, it really, you know, is first recognizing where the failures are um, and, and being truthful about it. And then everything else kind of fits in from there. I think that's a very important concept because even though you could solve every problem, that wouldn't be productive because, I mean, usually, I don't know what you want to spend your time doing, but usually a person should spend maybe 70% of their time doing what they're best at, right? Because if you if you are solving every problem, even though you can, it's not very good for the company. How's that like, how's your schedule evolved during these last years? Do you feel like you're you're getting closer to a normal week where you feel super productive or do you f still feel that some days you're doing so much different problem sets that maybe you could have out outsourced to better people in the team? It comes and goes. Um, I, I think that's the narrative of startups. You know, some weeks are great. Some weeks are bad. Some weeks you have everything on your plate and some weeks you focus on one specific thing. So it's just a lot of different changes. Um, but you know, as far as the, the, the normalcy, I, I think it's, it's getting every time that we add more people to the, the actual team. Um, you know, it takes a couple months, you figure out what works, what doesn't work. And then you start to draw, figure out where, how, how you work well with different groups. Um, and then every time that happens, you get more and more scheduled. Um, for example, I know, you know, when it comes to certain pieces of the tech, 
I don't need to be involved in. I don't need to be involved in the conversation. I don't need to be, you know, I don't approve anything. I don't write any of it. Um, and we can have that straight, you know, team does, I guess, split essentially. Um, but it, it takes some time, um, but you're constantly juggling. I think it changes every week because um, everyone's growing. Everyone's being able to take on more and we're all trying to figure out which pieces fit in the best. Agree. Can we introduce some of the investors? Because you have landed some very good people from Norway and US. Uh, maybe you can start on the Norway side and then we can take the US investors, which maybe some are, are familiar with. So who are they and how did you end up choosing them? Because I think, have you been lucky all the time? I remember talking to you in, in one particular round, it seemed like there was always an interest. So has it been more about choosing the right ones? Because some don't have that luxury of choosing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for us, we have had the, the, the ability to choose who's been the, the right partners for us. Um, and we have been very fortunate in that case. And we've brought on, you know, a great team um, from the Norway side, you know, Hatch has has been a big supporter of ours um, and really got us going. Um, so we participated in their first cohort um, back in 2018 you know, in Bergen. Um, and, you know, they've been they've been crucial from the aquaculture standpoint. Um, they've had a worldwide reach with the partners they've had and the experience they've had in the industry. And that for us has been really huge. You know, from the U.S. side, we Boost VC is 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 the investors who have supported us. Um, and Adam Draper in particular has been extremely, extremely helpful. Um, you know, what they bring to us is, is kind of a, a different mindset. You know, they bring in the American VC mentality. Um, they have helped us kind of open doors and see what is out there. And I mean, Adam in particular is extremely passionate about the actual oceans. Um, and, you know, I think I connected with him a lot on that and our team did. Um, and, you know, when it comes to investors, you're building a team too, right? You want to have a team that you can go to during the bad days, during the, 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 the good days. Um, and they can be a sounding board. They can help you resolve issues. They can give you ideas. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, they, you want them to be in support of you. And we have that with our VCs. If you take Adam, Adam as an example, which seems extremely smart and very driven, do you use those conversations to get inspired or do you use them to, to solve problems? Because I think both are like good enough, right? Because if you have um, the person helping you, like it's also on your, in your best interest to use that person the best way, right? Because of course you can have board members that are super smart, but it doesn't mean that you should visit them every evening. Like I have a problem, can you help me fix it? So how do you use those people effectively? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, I think it comes back to recognizing what you need to improve on. Um, you know, when it comes for, from, from our side, you know, he brings in a lot of expertise from other companies and they aren't in the same space, but many of them have gone through the same challenges. So, you know, a particular question I'll ask him is, you know, have you seen the same issue happen? You know, have you ever seen a company deal with the same, same problem in other space? I think, you know, maybe aquaculture is similar to agriculture, maybe it's similar to healthcare. And if, if you've seen similar things kind of occur, you know, the, 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 the kind of trends um, and the truth there could be very helpful for us. Um, the other side of it is, you know, being a sounding board and knowing where you can go to get advice. Um, and this isn't necessarily advice on just operational, but it could be emotional 
advice. You know, being a founder can sometimes be lonely in a sense. Um, and, and you've probably heard that in, in many stories and, you know, finding the right investors and the right advisors who, who, who you can talk to about those things can be very helpful. Um, so we have advisors, a great team of advisors along with investors and they each serve a different purpose. Um, for us, and we've been very careful in how we've picked it to make sure it's very balanced. Can we can we dive into the concept of like loneliness, loneliness and stuff? Because I feel like founders are typically viewed as super people, so they are typically very smart, right? Like very driven, have a lot of grit, and of course they have it. But I mean, a lot of conversations that doesn't go on Zoom calls like this one doesn't really showcase the like emotional roller coaster because. You're basically doing something that maybe some people say it's 10% chance of succeeding. Some say with the right team is 30% chance. So can you just give people an insight into how it is to found a company and try to scale it based on your experience? Because I guess you, you but you also know a lot of founders. So I guess you, you have, you have heard other stories as well, because it's a pretty rough five years ahead if you decide to start a company. Yeah, I mean, I think you can, there's the glass half full and the glass half empty point of view. Um, I'll say, you know, from my point of view, it's been the most exciting and kind of rewarding aspects of what I've done. Um, you know, I think I've learned more in the last few years than I've had at any point in my, my, my life. This is, you know, how to deal with people, how to build a company, how to manage sales and marketing. And, you know, you just are learning so much when you're talking about drinking from the fire hose, it really is it. Um, but you know, on the flip side of that, you know, you are taking on a lot. You know, it, you, I, when you have to deal with employees, you know, I think it's different when you're managing a team and you're part of a bigger company when they're really, you know, this is your team and, you know, the, the sacrifices you have to make, the weddings you don't get to, 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 to go to. Um, there's a lot of kind of personal sacrifice that comes in. And, you know, when things maybe aren't going as well as you hope, you know, that at that point, um, you can you can put yourself in a tough spot. Um, and you, you definitely hear that from, sorry, you hear that from a lot of founders. Um, but I will say, you know, even with all that, this has been the most rewarding and kind of aspect of, of, of anything I've done. But that's so important, Tony, because if you're working super hard, if you, but at the same time, get results. It's like this amazing experience. But I think the problem comes if you're like working around the clock and if you hit so many obstacles and you don't see any way out of it. I mean, that's the part that are not discussed because, you know, it's like having one rough night, it's okay. But to have the same rough night for six months and sacrificing everything and, you know, maybe people around you expect you to be a success. That has to be a, a, a tough thing mentally. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big sports fan. Um, I liken it, you know, following the actual journeys of a lot of, you know, athletes. Um, it's very similar, right? Like you grind and you grind. And the chance of you succeeding if you want an Olympic gold medal um, or an NBA championship, you know, any of these kind of accomplishments that you're measured on and expected to achieve is, you know, chance of it's pretty low, 
only one team wins every year. Um, and, you know, just because of that, that, that percentage, does it mean you don't go through the actual journey? Um, do you not grind every day with that in mind? Um, so it's, it, it's very similar. And, you know, that's where I think you can learn a lot of lessons and make the comparisons. I mean, maybe it's more extended, right? When it comes to startups, you, you, it can be five years, it can be 10 years. Um, but it's, 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 that's, I guess the viewpoint you got to have. Gotcha. So we got some Twitter questions that I just wanted to make you answer quickly. So one question that I think was pretty good was about, is this only for salmon farms? And of course, like you can just say that it's not, but it does, that's been the focus in Norway, at least. Absolutely. Um, we, we have the opinion that aquaculture is not going to grow without Norway. And we're talking globally, right? Software, tech, data, it's going to be applicable no matter what ocean market you want to look at, but we don't think it's going to happen without Norway being a part of it. Um, in Norway sets the example. So that has been our focus. If, if it doesn't work in Norway, it's going to be really hard to work anywhere else. <laughs> if it, let, let me say it like this after visiting Brazil, if it doesn't work in Norway, I don't think you will go to Brazil and build it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the other part was a bit about general tips to startups. Um, have you seen anything or changed your mind about anything that you are very keen to tell founders when you talk to them? Because this is a great platform to share some insights that maybe can help people. Because, I mean, a startup even can be very, it's the same journey if you're building tech or you're building something else. At least many many of the times you, you face the same issues with scale, hiring, culture, etc. Is, is there something that you feel is so important to, to tell the founders that are maybe thinking about starting or have just started building? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard it a lot um, and we heard it from some of our, you know, one of the, a, a big inspiration of mine, um, the founder of Pacifico Seafood out, out of Baja, Mexico. Um, he told us on our first meeting was, you know, the startup life isn't that grand. Like make sure if you're going to do this, be committed to it. Like, is this what you're willing to dedicate five, 10, 15 years to really work on? Like that's the mentality you got to have going in. Um, and I know, you know, in the last decade or so startups have become a very, a very kind of grand vision, right? It's the startup lifestyle. Um, it, it's very sexy from, from, from what the media portrays it at. But if you really want to solve the problems, you got to be really dedicated. And at the time, you know, the, 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 the person that we talked to, you know, John and I were a couple months in, you know, he had no idea whether we, we could be committed. We felt like we definitely were. Um, but that's something every founder and, you know, if you're going to jump into it, I think you got to have the right mindset. Um, we, we were committed to it, but we've had to prove it, right. We've had to be in Norway for, for a few years. Um, and you know, that's when people start to really recognize that you are definitely serious. Um, but I think that's, that's the mindset, you know, you got to make sure that whatever you're working on is something you're passionate about and something you can put in, you know, a big chunk of, 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 of your professional career into. That's so important because that basically means that if you have a great business idea that you think can make money in year two, three, but if you're not committed to working on it for at least five years, probably you should think about if you should start it, right? Yeah. Simple as that. So another part I wanted to just discuss briefly before we get to the end here is the concept of remote working. I mean, 
remote has always been talked about a lot, especially in the US, that is possible. You have like the Steve case, the rise of the rest, because this is also just to introduce the concept of remote. It's not just only about freedom. It's a big like cost structure or a cost component because to hire an engineer in Silicon Valley, maybe the salary is 10x. And if you're a startup, why would you be based in Silicon Valley? And also it's a recruiting issue because if you are competing with Stripe on hiring an engineer, of course, normally Stripe would beat you, right? But if you if you if you adjust the playing field, maybe there's a lot of arbitrage and a lot of opportunities. So can you also talk a bit about the concept of remote in your head, but also how has COVID either confirmed your thoughts or like disproved your your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, for us, we've always been remote to a certain degree. Um, I've always bounced back and forth with the States and Norway. We've always had, you know, employees here and employees in Bergen. Um, so our team's been split. So we've been naturally re remote even before COVID to a certain degree. But I think um, probably every single organization has felt it even harder and we're no different. Um, we thought we were pretty good at working remotely, but we've had to improve our processes, you know, whether it's how we track things, what we write down, how we schedule meetings. There's still been adjustments to be made. I mean, I think, you know, my personal opinion is remote's great. You know, there's there's ways it can work, um, but it's very hard to replicate the in-person interactions, you know, the in from the water cooler talks, the coffee talks, the walks you guys go on. Um, some of those types of activities are critical for a business and, you know, especially an early stage business that, that, you know, has a lot of ideas going on. You know, we talk about a lot of different things and, you know, in order to filter some of that out, those conversations are really important. So I think from an early, from a startup standpoint, there's been even more challenges to kind of address. I, when you deal with larger companies and, you know, roles are much more defined, remote, you know, can probably be scaled up a lot quicker. Um, but I'll be honest, you know, there's stuff that we haven't been able to, to try to replicate and still want to get better and still feel like it needs to be in person, but that's just our, our personal case. I mean, I think there is more flexibility. Um, we try to still see each other quite a bit as a team, but we definitely do work more remotely than, than especially with COVID. Can we discuss some of the tools that are necessary to make it work in remote? Is it the usual suspects with Slack, et cetera, or is it like Dropbox paper and other tools that you think it's foundational to get remote to work? Because some people are struggling on the software side on figuring out remote. Yeah. I mean, so I think we've always had the software side pretty, uh, the typical suspects, you know, Asana, HubSpot, Slack, Discord, um, you know, Whereby uh, is, is one of our favorites from the video side. You know, those have always been the kind of usual suspects, but I think what's the improvement has been made is figuring out what the processes look like within each one of those categories. Um, and, and really, you know, staying together as a team on we're going to do it this way because um, everybody works slightly differently. So it's more about figuring out which ones we, we, we want to agree on and which ones work best for us. Um, less on, you know, specific, there's the one tool that just solves all our problems. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So uh, when you're hiring, because you're kind of in hiring mode uh, the next mm -hmm. years and also now, I think some of the positions are in Bergen, correct? Correct. So how does it look from an American to hire people in Norway? Because maybe, can we introduce Norway as a country for one minute before you answer that question? Because it's Go not like, it. we're not like a East European country where people cost, I don't know what the salary is in East European, as a East Europe, but 
I mean, we're a fairly rich country with, <laughs> how can I say this? I have to put it in a way that doesn't get me in trouble. Uh, we enjoy, <laughs> you said you, we enjoy our walks. So we have some freedom and we don't like to sit in the office from eight to eight, maybe. Mm-hmm. So how, how yeah. does it look hiring people in Norway from your perspective? No, again, you know, when it comes down, it, it's, it's about what's, what's the right fit, right? Because the mission that, that we, we are going after, um, we want to make a big impact across, you know, oceans. And we think people in Norway have that same drive and, and that same passion. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to work the exact same way. You can be efficient and be in the office for six hours. You can, you know, fiddle around and get more done in 12 hours if, if that's, you know, the way that, that you work. I think, you know, for us, it's about the right person, not necessarily, you know, whether you fit into the right schedule and whatnot. So, you know, that's, that's how I'm doing it. We're looking for people that are the right fit and have the right drive and have the right passions. Um, how we, you know, culturally match up or, you know, the differences, we know we're going to need to work through some of them. Um, but that's something that I feel like we can figure out. But can you tap into, you must have some funny Norwegian stories because I don't think yeah. you knew a lot about Norway when you came to Norway. Can you just explain for maybe the foreign listeners how did you like uh, found Norway? Do you have any stories that you remember that like, okay, I'm in Norway now, not in the US? I think Bergen has its own unique culture and, and style. Um, the one story I have is, you know, whenever we first got there, what people said was, if it's sunny outside, do not expect anybody in the office. And, you know, coming from business, from big cities, like, what does that mean? Like, doesn't it work? Work has to get done. Business is business. You know, if there's a call there, there's a call, right? Like, that's just what happens. You know, you may have your cell phone, but you got to be on it. Um, what I've come to learn is when the sun is out in Bergen, nothing, everybody will be outside. Um, that is a hard and fast rule that, you know, took time. But I mean, I'll say it, you know, our, it, it makes a lot of sense living in Bergen for a few months. When you see that sun comes out, you know, it's that is the, the kind of call sign yeah because um, you have I, to explain a typical a day in bergen example. right yeah we, we ha- you have yeah. to explain a typical day in bergen because it, it's not sunny all the time <laughs> exactly no it's uh when when those days are, are are out work gets adjusted everything gets adjusted to make sure you can fit it in um but I th- yeah it, i think I, I absolutely bergen love is, it. <laughs> yeah because I, I think what bergen is one of the cities with the most amount of rainy days so i think that's an oh. important part of that story so that's true. That's true. Yeah. And I'm not sure maybe Seattle works in a similar way um, because I know there's definitely a lot of rain there. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the small quirks for sure. So last question, Tony, before we hang up, uh, if you can forecast your company uh, maybe two years forward and then five years forward, what are the milestones you would like to see just so that people can understand what you want, want to accomplish going forward the next years? Yeah. I mean, I think within the next year, year and a half, our focus is going to be continuously Norway. Um, You know, our goal is to build, you know, what's valuable for the farmers and really putting them first. Um, I think as you grow from there, kind of when you kind of forecast outside of three, five years, um, it's about how this data and, you know, what the farmers are doing can help grow the industry. Um, How does it help it scale better? How, How does it help it scale in a sustainable way? 
and how do we bring these tools to the larger markets? Um, you know, whether it's, you know, the growing seafood or sorry, seaweed and kelp markets or filter feeders or shrimp markets, but how do you scale what's going on in Norway into, you know, these other markets? But that's what we look at when you're looking at two to five years. So in five years, then we're talking emerging markets because this is a global company. It's not like you're going to end in, end in Norway, right? Yeah, we, we definitely ho hope to keep expanding. Um, and that is definitely the plan um, is to keep looking at other markets. Perfect. So for people interested in maybe having an interesting job, this could be, it, it's different joining a company in year. I don't know what year that is. Is, is it third, fourth year? Two. Yeah, two. Yeah, yeah it's about so, two and a half. Because now you're getting to be a part of scaling. I mean, the first two years is a lot of trying and failing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, the first two years, it's it can seem hectic, right? You, you don't know where where things are going. You know, there's a lot of pivots going on, um, a lot of new ideas. But um, at this stage, it's it's really about growth and and you know scaling up what's going on to to impact more and and help our farmers for sure. Perfect, perfect ending. Thank you so much, Tony, for taking the time. It was awesome. Thank you. This has been great. Hi everyone, Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.